Before we get into the scripture, let's pray together. Oh God, speak to us this morning. Speak to me even as I preach. God, may yours be the only voice that is heard in our community today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we talked about Abraham, and today we're talking about Moses. Now, if you're not familiar with Moses, we've got to do a little review here uh, and, and get us up to speed from where we left off last week. Remember, Sawyer talked about Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant last week. How awesome was Sawyer, by the way? Man, that was fantastic. I was so blessed by Sawyer's preaching. And he talked about the promises that God had given to Abraham. And one of the ways that God fulfilled his promise was by giving Abraham that promised son, Isaac. Now, Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. And those 12 sons had children. And they became the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 kind of family clans of Israel. Now, those uh, 12 brothers sold uh, Joseph, one of their brothers, into slavery in Egypt. And he rose to prominence in Egypt, became the right-hand man of Pharaoh. And after a little bit of, you know, kerfluffle, uh, and that's a light way to put it, eventually the nation of Egypt and the nation of Israel started to get along really, really well. The nation of Israel was blessed because Joseph was Pharaoh's right-hand man. But unfortunately, after Joseph died, another Pharaoh rose to prominence in Egypt that didn't know all that Joseph had done. And eventually the nation of Israel became indentured servants, slaves in Egypt. They were slaves for 430 years. And they cried out for a redeemer over and over and over again. Well, after about 400 years or so, the nation of Israel had grown in population. They were actually more populous than the nation of Egypt. And Pharaoh panicked a little bit. He said, we can't have this because if they want to have a coup, they will overtake us because of their very numbers. So he says, slaughter every Hebrew boy under the age of two. Well, Joshebed, she didn't want that to happen to her son. So she took her son placed him in a basket of reeds and placed him in the river for his safety, to be honest. And as that basket coasts down the river, another woman found the basket. That woman was Pharaoh's daughter. That little boy was Moses. Pharaoh's daughter immediately recognized that Moses was Hebrew, probably because of his complexion and the way his face looked and the colors he was wearing and things. And so she says, hey, does anyone know a Hebrew woman that will nurse this Hebrew boy? Well, Moses' sister, Miriam, had followed him down the river. She says, I know a woman. And she went and got her own mother, Moses' mother, Joshebed, and she's able to nurse her own son, Moses. What an act of providence of God. What a miracle. Well, Moses grew up as a Hebrew. He knew he was Hebrew. He knew he was part of the nation of Israel. But again, he grew up in Pharaoh's house, raised by Pharaoh's family. Well, there comes a point in Moses' early life where he observes an Egyptian guard abusing a Hebrew slave. And in defense of his fellow Hebrew, Moses kills the Egyptian guard. And then he flees because he knows the punishment that faces him if he sticks around. And he flees into the desert of Midian. He meets a woman, 
has babies, raises a family, becomes a shepherd, and he's out there for 40 years. And after 40 years, God appears to Moses in a burning bush and says, Moses, I need you to go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. In the scripture, you can already feel that God is answering the prayers of the nation of Israel by sending a redeemer, Moses, to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. So after a little bit of arguing, to be honest, Moses eventually goes to Pharaoh and says, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, okay. Then he doesn't do it. So God sends a plague. And Pharaoh says, okay, okay, I'll do it now. And then he doesn't do it. So God sends another plague. And then he says, okay, okay, no more plagues. I'll do it now. And then he doesn't do it. After nine plagues, Pharaoh went back on his word nine times. And on the 10th plague, God sends the angel of death into the nation of Egypt to take all the firstborn sons out of every house in the nation of of Egypt, just as Egypt had done to Israel decades earlier. God says to his people, the nation of Israel, if you want to be protected, take a lamb, a perfect lamb, slaughter the lamb, take the lamb's blood, put it on the doorposts of your house. And when the angel of death comes through, he will pass over your home and not take the firstborn. That's the Passover. And we'll talk about that next week. And so Pharaoh eventually says, I am so grieved by this, I will finally let the nation of Israel go. And so the nation of Israel leaves Egypt on the eastern side of the Nile River Delta and begins to travel south and east. Pharaoh regrets his decision. I mean, he just lost all his free labor. And so he sends his army and leads his army to recapture the nation of Israel. And just as the nation of Israel gets to the Red Sea, they're trapped, the Red Sea in front of them, Pharaoh's army behind them, and God miraculously parts the Red Sea, and the nation of Israel travels across the Red Sea safely. Pharaoh's army pursues behind them, and just as the nation of Israel emerges out of the Red Sea, the Red Sea collapses on Pharaoh's army and obliterates them, and the nation of Israel is safe now in the Sinai Peninsula. They continue to travel south, and they end up at Mount Sinai itself, and that's where we pick up our story in Exodus chapter 19. The scripture reads this way. On the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. Verse 4. This is God speaking now. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, there's our key word, Then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me, pay attention now, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're going to talk about that in more detail in a minute. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. 
So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. So now we have the Mosaic covenant, don't we? We just saw God make a covenant with his people through Moses. So let's talk about the five aspects here of the Mosaic covenant. Real easy. The first one, the human mediator is who? Moses. That's right. That's the human mediator of the covenant. Second, the blessings of the covenant are redemption from slavery in Egypt and freedom to worship God. This covenant is a little bit different because it is a conditional covenant. God says, obey my commandments. They will be synthesized in the Ten Commandments that uh, God gives to Moses and, and, and expanded over the next few chapters of Exodus and books of the Bible, but they're really summarized by the Ten Commandments. That's the condition. Keep those commandments. The internal sign of the covenant is always what? Faith. That's right. The external sign of the covenant was a celebration, a festival that God commanded the nation of Israel to have every year to remember redemption from Egypt. Can you guess what that might be? Passover. That's right. And now here's where I want to focus today, and, and we'll get there in a minute, that the form that God's covenant community takes as a result of this covenant was they become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, what in the world does that have to do with Jesus? That's the question that we've asked ourselves throughout this series. It's called Foundations because we recognize that the Old Testament shapes the way that Jesus saw himself and the way the authors of the New Testament saw Jesus and the way that we should see Jesus. We should see him through the lens of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament or the New Testament is replete with examples of the ways in which Jesus' life parallels the life of Moses. The reason why we took so long to tell the entire story of Moses is so that we could see the ways in which Moses and Jesus parallel one another. Watch, here are just a few examples and there are literally hundreds more. Uh, the Israelites experienced 400 years of slavery in Egypt before Moses came to rescue them. After Malachi, the Israelites experienced 400 years of silence, no prophets, until Jesus came to save them. During the time of Moses, Pharaoh ordered the execution of every, every Hebrew boy under two. During the time of Jesus, Herod ordered the same thing. Moses was born without shelter and laid in a straw basket. Jesus was born without shelter and laid in a straw manger. Moses was a Hebrew Levite. Jesus was a Hebrew Levite. Moses came out of Egypt to redeem his people. And remember, though Jesus was born in Bethlehem, he fled to Egypt to escape uh, Herod's order. So he came up out of Egypt to save God's people as well. Moses emerged from the Red Sea and then began his ministry and delivered the law to the people. Jesus emerged from the Jordan River, Matthew chapter 3, after his baptism and then reinterpreted the Mosaic law. Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus was tempted for 40 days. Moses received the Ten Commandments from God. Jesus reinterpreted those Ten Commandments specifically in the Sermon on the Mount. Moses was royalty in Egypt, but left his position of power to save God's people. Jesus was royalty in heaven and left his position of power for the same reason. God's covenant was first given to Moses. God's covenant is finalized in Jesus. Moses is the mediator of God's covenant, and Jesus is the final mediator of God's covenant. And on and on it goes, the parallels of the life of Moses and Jesus. And it's not just those 
parallels that we might write off as coincidental, although that's a lot of parallels and there are a lot more. But Jesus deliberately calls attention to the life of Moses himself so that his listeners would understand. Remember in the conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus says, and you may know it, so quote it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son and whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Kaya just memorized that verse. So, so let's quote the verse right before it together, shall we? Let's do the verse right before it. And when the... We don't know that one, do we? Now watch, watch what Jesus says right before John three sixteen. Listen, he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, deliberately calling attention to the life of Moses, paralleling his own life and ministry with the life of Moses. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life in him. Now, Jesus is referencing a story from Numbers chapter 21. God's people had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, and they began to grumble. They began to say stupid stuff like, oh, it was better in Egypt. You're kidding me. You were slaves. It was better in Egypt. You got to be joking me. And they grumbled against Moses and against God. So in order to purify his people, God sent poisonous vipers and they would bite people. And if you were bit by one of these vipers, you were going to die. So God provided a way of salvation. He said, Moses, make a mold of a snake, put it on a stick, lift it up. And if anyone is bitten by one of these vipers, if they look to that mold of a snake, they will be saved. I have no idea why God chose that way of deliverance. I have no idea why he chose that symbol. Maybe Moses didn't either. What we know is that God provided a way for people to be saved from this viper bite. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up that snake in the wilderness so that people would be saved, so must I be lifted up, the Son of Man, so that people may be saved. Listen to Hebrews chapter 3. The author of Hebrews writes this. He says, Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Listen to what the author of Hebrews says, because this would be a <gasps> moment for the first century Hebrew mindset. He says, Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses. <gasps> What? The deliverer, the redeemer, the deliverer of God's law. Jesus found worthy of greater honor than Moses. Nobody has more honor than Moses in the Hebrew mindset. And the author of Hebrews says, yes, indeed, he does. Why? Second half of verse three, just as the builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. Moses was like the house. Jesus was the architect. Peter is talking to his Hebrew brothers and sisters here. And in Acts chapter 3, verse 22, he says, For Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Do you understand that Moses is prophesying Jesus generations before Jesus shows up? In Deuteronomy 18, 18, that's what Peter's quoting there. All of Matthew is built around the life of Moses. Really, check this out. Matthew is twice as long as Mark. Matthew's gospel is twice as long as Mark's gospel. Matthew tells less stories. How's that work? In order to be twice as long, don't you have to tell twice as many stories? No, it's because Matthew's gospel hinges around Jesus' teaching, namely his reinterpretation of the Mosaic law. 
In fact, Matthew's gospel hinges around five sermons that Jesus gives. Why five? Because the Torah, the cornerstone of the Old Testament, includes five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That is on purpose. Matthew is doing that deliberately, clearly, obviously. In fact, Jesus' very first sermon, it's the Sermon on the Mount. His reinterpretation of the Mosaic Law begins this way. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then he goes on to reinterpret the Mosaic Law as summarized by the Ten Commandments. And he says it's not just about the external things, it's about the internal things. And he talks about keeping your oaths and how we treat one another and marriage and divorce. And he reinterprets the Mosaic Law and reminds us that it's about the heart. Matthew's entire gospel is structured around the life of Moses. So now we're beginning to see Jesus through the lens of the Old Testament and how Jesus and the authors of the New Testament clearly saw the life and work and ministry of the Messiah through the lens of the Old Testament, namely the Mosaic Law. Now, you may be asking, what does that have to do with me? So I get how that relates to Jesus, but what does that have to do with me? Now, now Peter will tell us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, Listen to what Peter writes to the church. He's writing this to the church in the first century. He's also writing this to us, the church in the 21st century. Listen to what he says. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. I'm going to read that again. See if any of that language sounds familiar. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Remember Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey fully and keep my covenant, out of all the nations you will be my what? treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Back to 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a chosen people, my treasured possession, church. You are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. So listen, if we are to understand our role as a royal priesthood and a holy nation, church, we must understand what God was calling his people to in Exodus chapter 19. So let's take those two phrases and understand them. First, what does it mean that we're a kingdom of priests? Well, one of the ways to understand a priest is to contrast priests with prophets. See, prophets take God's message to the people. On the other hand, priests take the people's message to God. See, priests go to God on behalf of the people to offer a sacrifice, to offer prayers, whatever. That was the role of the priest under the Mosaic Covenant. So he says, you are to be a kingdom of priests, nation of Israel, and church, you are to be a kingdom of priests going to God on behalf of the people. Listen to what uh, Christopher J.H. Wright writes. We've referenced this book before. It's called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. This is what he writes about being a kingdom of priests. 
He says, as the people of Yahweh, they would have the historical task of bringing the knowledge of God to the nations and bringing the nations to the means of atonement with God. The priesthood of the people of God is thus a missional function. You are, we are, sent into the world to bring the nations to God. That's our role as priests. Second, we are to be a holy nation. Now, on Facebook Live, I, I mentioned this this week, uh, that, that my favorite covenant is probably the Mosaic Covenant. Why? Because I think I, I understand it. And many people don't. They, they look at the Mosaic Covenant and the Mosaic Law as a bunch of rules and regulations, like an albatross that God hangs around the neck of His people. And so when they read that phrase, holy nation, they think, okay, so we're supposed to follow all of God's rules. Let's think of it a little bit differently. Let's think about whole nation, W-H-O-L-E, a whole nation, because that's really the original language in the scripture there. You are to be a whole nation. So when God gives the law to the nation of Israel, as summarized by the Ten Commandments, He is restoring humanity to how He originally designed to have a relationship with Him, to be good to one another, to walk with Him in the cool of the day. It's God's redemption and renewal of all things. Ian Scott is a professor at Tyndale right around the corner from the church. Listen to what he writes about this concept of being a holy nation, a whole nation, and following what God stipulated in the law. He says, far from being a burden then, the law of Moses was understood by Jews in Jesus' day as a precious gift. It was an expression of God's mercy, grace, and desire to be reunited in committed relationship with a healthy, thriving creation. It was the instrument through which Israel could begin to be reshaped into something like a restored humanity so that the people could invite the whole cosmos to join in a life of communion with their Creator. In other words, this covenant-keeping, law-shaped community was supposed to be a foretaste of heaven. Kingdom of priests, whole nation. So what does that mean for us? First, in our priestly role, all Christians should live sacrificially for others. That's what the priest did in the Old Testament, served the people, sacrificed for the people, lived on behalf of the people, and we too should sacrifice for those around us. Jesus repeats this motif over and over. He says, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other. Someone asks you to carry their stuff for a mile, you carry it too. Sacrifice, lay down your life for the sake of someone else. Number two, as God's priest, we are to offer intercession on behalf of others. We are to go to God on behalf of our friends or family. We are to go to God on behalf of our enemies and ask for God's blessing, for His kindness, and for His grace to be poured out on them. This is why Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we uh, repeat this verse over and over here at Bayview Glen. He says, All this is from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20 we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making His appeal through us. Our goal and our role as His priests is to live sacrificially for others and to intercede on behalf of others and to bring God's ministry of reconciliation to the world. I've been thinking about a couple of groups too, as a matter of fact, just been on my heart uh, this last week that really need us, the church, 
to be a royal priesthood and a whole nation. The first is trans people in our society. I watched a documentary on Netflix this week called Disclosure. It's a very interesting documentary about the plight of trans people and how they're portrayed in the media and the difficulties and challenges and persecution really that they've undergone in our culture. They need us, church, to intercede on their behalf. They need us, church, to live sacrificially for them, to love them, to serve them. And you may say to me, Luke, but what about, yeah, I know, there's a, there's a prophet role too, but a lot of times we get a little heavy on that side, Christians, I'll just tell you that. We need to be a kingdom of priests that are living sacrificially and serving. Second, our black brothers and sisters are struggling right now with what's going on across the U.S. and Canada and really globally and the impact of racism and systemic racism in our world. And one of the ways that we can be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to our black brothers and sisters is by understanding white people, brown people, Asian people. We we don't understand all the time what our black brothers and sisters have gone through in North America. And so in order to be a kingdom of priests and a whole nation and to love and serve and live sacrificially and intercede, we must first seek to understand. Toward that end, I actually did an interview with a friend this past week. He was born here in Toronto, and he lives now in Manhattan. And it was an opportunity for me to seek to understand the world from his perspective. I wanted to share that with you today as we seek to be a kingdom of priests and a whole nation right here in this historical moment. Let's listen. Did you watch the George Floyd video? I did. So... um... I've watched the video in its entirety. Uh, so that was Memorial Day. It's crazy. You know, the minute you ask that, it immediately triggers emotions. And I've watched the video uh, in its entirety uh, the day after Memorial Day um, here. And it, I was overcome, just as I'm about to get overcome with emotions now. Um, I did watch it, yeah. Uh, what, what are the primary emotions that you felt? So my initial thoughts uh, are, hey, get off his neck. My initial, uh, and then there's sadness and there's anger. And then there's fear in like, wow, this is how easy it is. This is how easy it is. And whenever we get to a place where things become really easy, that's a dangerous thing. Where we come to a place where killing or, 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 or any crime, especially a violent crime, becomes easy. That's a very dangerous and scary thing. It's a very scary thing because then we stop seeing people as human. And that, that, to me, is where the fear is. So you, you mentioned fear. And so one of my other questions is, um, and, and it, I'm, I think I'm leading the witness here a little bit, but, <laughs> but uh, have you ever felt fear when you've been pulled over and or addressed by police or you see a police car or whatever that, that you think stems from the color of your skin? I have definitely experienced fear in the States. And that's an interesting thing for me to even say, admit fear. It's not something that I readily admit, but I'm aware. And I'm aware driving in the South. I remember driving through Louisiana, getting pulled over by a state trooper. Um, And I did not feel as much fear because he was black. Had he been a white state trooper, maybe a different situation. Mm -hmm. Um, 
But most recently, I can tell you the answer is yes. And it's not a, not a feeling I felt, I felt in years. One of the things that I would love it if you would speak to is, is I think my impression has been for a lot of Canadians is that this is an American problem. And the further south, <laughs> the further south you go, the worse it gets. Perhaps that's true. The further south you go, the worse it gets. Perhaps that's true. But, but would you just speak to that kind of like this is an American problem kind of uh, notion? Yeah. You know, Lucas, it's so funny how these things come up because as I'm talking to you now, like it's an emotional convo. It's an emotional conversation. And uh, I mean, I wear my heart on my sleeve, so I have no issue with that. But it, um, I didn't expect these, these things to get uh, to get uh, so stirred up. These emotions get so stirred up. Um, they are because being from Canada, we love to take that position. We love to take that position of, hey, we are multicultural. We are. Ex- accepting of everyone we are inclusive we're diverse we use all these words we embrace um you know we're tolerant and i would say all those things it it are true in large part right in large in large part large part but to get to that like we therefore we don't have an issue and that's yeah and and that that's where that's where that's where i kind of jump in where i'm like whoa 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 and I wrote, I remember writing an essay about this years ago when I was in school and it was just like Canadian racism, or Canadian issues of discrimination exist. They're just different than, than American ways of racism and where American ways of discrimination. And I think you hit it on the head. Once you get into the, well, we're tolerant, we're embracing, we do all this, therefore we can't. That's a dangerous thing because, you know, you, you really start getting a little too comfortable and that. That's like, you know, that's like someone who's, who, who maybe is verbally abusive to their spouse. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't beat my spouse. You know, I'm not, I'm not violent with my spouse. Mm-hmm. You know, at least I'm not like that guy. Right? Yeah. And that's a, danger, that's a dangerous thing because both things are wrong. What we're really talking about our degrees and we're really talking about, you know, psychological we we know that verbal abuse carries psychological wounds physical wounds often can heal verbal don't and the reason i'm actually and i think it's actually a really good analogy because i would equate it between canada and the u.s canada does not have the violent crime issue um that the states has does not have the certainly not the, the 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 degree to which we have violent racist acts or violent police brutality we definitely have it Gun culture, but gun culture is different. The gun, the gun culture is different. All that is different. Our history of slavery is not there where it is with the states. So there are different things. But the reason I think this verbal abuse and physical abuse parallel works is because the key word in both of those things is abuse, right? And the same thing happens with Canada and the U.S. It's, okay, we may not have the, the lynch, the history of lynchings. We may not have these things. What we do have is structural racism. What we do have is systemic racism. What we do have is you know, we don't speak about these things. We don't speak about corporate culture in Canada. Right. And, you know, we love to, to think we're pretty multicultural. And we certainly are, for, by and large. But once you leave Toronto, Vancouver, and Montreal, Canada pretty white. <laughs> pretty white. Yeah. And I've traveled across the country. And that's not a bad thing. But it, it, we, we get too comfortable. I think when we use the word racism, 
many people think um, about racial slurs. Yeah. Um, but it, especially in the, um, uh, you know, in American Sun, like one of the things they address there is there is some coded language that that has racist undertones or or overtones or whatever could do you have a couple of examples that come to mind of like coded language or or questions you've been asked or comments that you're going hmm that doesn't that you may you may not have just called me a name but but by what you said there's there's your there's some racism happening here racism also looks like or sounds like you know when i say to someone you know, we love asking people where they're from. It's such a big question, right? Because we, we love to kind of put people in boxes. You know, and I tell them, oh, I'm from Canada. But no, where are you really from? Uh, right? Okay. Right, where are you really from? Yeah. I'm talking about, I was born in Mount Sinai Hospital, University Avenue. What are you talking about? <laughs> right? And so, right, what, what, what that gets into that, because it, it really, we're trying to put people in the tribes, really, and, right? And I think, we, you know, that's a coded thing. Or, you know, words like ghetto. Oh, that's so ghetto. Or that's so this, that's so urban, right? Urban's a great word we use all the time. Well, really, we want to say black. Oh, that's urban music. But country music, urban music? What are you talking about? What's urban music? Right, right. What are you talking about? Okay, so here's one. Do you prefer Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter and why? That's the critical one. So uh, that's an easy question. That's an easy question. All lives matter is nonsense. Not that, not that all lives don't matter, because we know, first of all, we know lives matter. We know that. We know that life matters. We know, like, there's a word for people who don't believe that lives matter. They're psychopaths, right? Mm -hmm. they're, they're, you know, if you don't believe that life matters, we usually put you in an institution. That's kind of the way it goes. So let's, under the, let's, let's work under the assumption and, and observation that most of us are not psychopaths or sociopaths, mm -hmm. and, we all, and we, all of us, we human believe that life matters and all human lives matter. Okay, start so at that assumption. That's great. Let, let's start at that assumption, and I think we're, we're in a pretty great place. Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter is something that developed, and, and I can actually speak to this because I, I, I understood it. When it when it gained prominence, I understood it when it when when it started when it started, um, and I've come to understand it and embrace it now more than I did years ago. But when when folks say Black Lives Matter, when we say Black Lives Matter, the reason that we're saying this is because once again, if we're starting with this assumption that all lives matter, which we know that the reason that Black Lives Matter has been said and and needs to be said is because. There are a lot of people who are not working with that assumption. There are a lot of people who do not believe they matter as much. There are, not, there are a lot of people who, who do not see black life on the same level playing field as white lives or other lives in general. So when people say black lives matter, when we say black lives matter, what we are trying to say is, hey, see us in the same light that you see white lives, Asian lives, Spanish lives, Hispanic lives, whatever. Just see us in the same playing field. Because for too long, those lives have not mattered. We don't say this with any other, um, any other cause. It's very interesting if we think about it, and I'd love people to think about this too. There is no cause in the world that we say a counter to. For, 
for example. Everyone has a counter to Black Lives Matter. Well, all lives matter or white lives matter. No one's saying they don't. But no other cause we do is we don't hear, um, we don't hear someone represent the rainforest and say, you know what? The Amazon rainforest is burning. We need to save the rainforest. Well, what about the rainforest over there? What about other rainforests, right? As someone who loves animals, if, 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 if we were having an issue with, with, with dogs or, 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 or platypus, if we were having like platypus being endangered, and if I had a, a bumper sticker that said, save the platypus, would you come up beside me in the car and say, what about the whales? What about the whales? Right. What about the dolphins? No, because that's insane. So when you're used to privilege, equality can sometimes feel like oppression. It's not, right? It's just, hey, maybe let me think about it from another perspective. Maybe just look around. All right. Wait, 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 wait. Back that, back that truck up real quick. When you're used to privilege, equality can sometimes feel like oppression. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's awesome. That's radical. That's good. That'll preach. I think that's the thing that we all have to kind of understand. And I think it's a great way to end because to my white brothers and sisters, I would ask, how many times when you leave the house do you think about the fact that you're white? How many times do you think about that? Because I can, zero. I can guarantee you, I have never stepped outside of my house and, it's, and not thought about the fact that I'm black. I have to think about that, and then I have to think about everything else too. Both of those things that I have to work with and, and people like me have to work with. So when we talk about being aware and we talk about privilege, it's every, everyone faces hardship, I think, regardless of race, color, everyone faces hardship. You know, you might grow up in an alcoholic family, abusive family, great family, well, it doesn't matter, but everyone faces hardship. The question that I think we need to start asking is, how many of those hardships were because of your skin color? And that, that's the question. Yeah. And what can we do to kind of start removing that as being a reason for the hardship? Thanks, man. You're awesome. Of course. I have my moments. <laughs> I have my moments. Easy when I got a good, uh, a good friend to do this with. So yeah. thanks, for, thanks for this. This is great. Yeah, man. Happy to. I hope that was as helpful to you as it was to me as we seek specifically to be a royal priesthood and a holy nation to those in our world that need it. And there are far more, right? There are far more. It's not just those two groups. Who in your life needs you to be a royal priesthood and a whole nation to live out God's covenant, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love? Now, as we conclude, there's one more piece of this that I think is really special and really fascinating. If we rewind to Exodus chapter 3, when God calls Moses out of Midian to go back to Egypt to redeem his people and say, Pharaoh, let my people go, Moses says to God, who shall I say sent me? When Pharaoh asks, hey, who are you coming on behalf of? Because you're not coming on behalf of yourself, right? God says to Moses, you tell Pharaoh, I am who I am. Yahweh, God's covenant name, so sacred to the nation of Israel. God's covenant name, 
his personal name so sacred that they wouldn't even write it out. They wouldn't even speak it out loud. It was so unique, so special. And God's entire covenant with Moses is built upon Yahweh, this covenant name of God. So in John chapter 8, verse 58, Jesus says to his fellow Hebrew brothers and sisters, Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Did you hear the language? Jesus is using God's covenant name in reference to himself. God's sacred name, his covenant-keeping name, the name that the nation of Israel wouldn't even utter out loud, wouldn't even write the full name on paper. And how do they respond? Verse 59, at this, they picked up stones to stone him. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. His Hebrew brothers and sisters knew exactly what he was doing. He's using God's covenant name from the Mosaic covenant to refer to himself the builder of the house, not the house itself.